Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Turfgrass Epistemology. I'm Travis Shaddix. Thank you for coming tonight. I see the chat's already getting filled up. We've got some uh, eclectic groups in here tonight already. Thank you for the compliment, Connecticut Cubanican. <laughs> I'll I'll go with that comment. Welcome to the best channel, everyone. I'll 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 defer to whatever your opinion is on that. Thank you very much. Um, Lush says he's a quick vacation to Vermont. Good. Well, welcome everybody. If you're new, if this is the first time you're listening or watching, this is Turfgrass Epistemology. And here on this channel, we review the turfgrass science literature and try to answer the question, how we know what we know. How do you know what you know? You've heard a lot of things on YouTube. you heard a lot of, you know, lawn care people saying do this and do that. And here we just ask, how do you know that's true? Uh, how do, why should I follow that recommendation? You know, that's what we explore. And I think I've, we've been having some positive impact. I, I really think I'm starting to feel a little bit, um, of a, of a movement, uh, you know, in, in the chit chat on the internet. I, I see some people commenting and I'm, we're going to go over a video tonight. That was very flattering of the channel. And, um, and I, it's starting to, you know, it feels good. You know, of all my years in the in, in the academic world, um, we oftentimes, um, well, not oftentimes, every year we have to fill out a, a, a evaluation form, and it's very long and involved. And part of it is to measure our impact, and it's very difficult to measure your impact when you're an extension. It's not easy to do at all. And I told my wife tonight, I was like, I think in the last six months, I've probably had more of an impact on doing this than I did in six years in academia. I mean, I don't know if that's true, but it seems like you know, I'm able to get the, the message out a little bit um, more directly this way than I ever did in academia, but you know, who knows? So it's, it feels, feels good. So we're going to jump right into it. We got a lot. If you want to see me mess up, anybody out there that giggles whenever I mess up on the audio visual stuff. Yeah. You're probably going to be in for a treat tonight because I've got all sorts of stuff. I got three different things open and I mean, it's just maybe no, I got more than that. I got five different things open and I'm going to have to be switching back and forth and just be quick on the chat when you see me mess up. I'm going to open up the, the phone line if anybody wants to call in a little bit, uh, about 15, 20 minutes. Um, there was somebody that wanted me to answer a question or two and I told him if you wanted to, you could do it tonight when I open up the phone line. So if you want to do that and you're so inclined to ask a question that way, feel free. I'll open it up in, like I said, 10 or 15 minutes and you'll have an opportunity to ask whatever question you want and I'll do my best to answer it. But we got a lot to go over, so we're going to jump right into it. This weekend, uh, I have a very, this is a very small channel. You all know, I don't know how many viewers I got, a couple hundred, 600 or 700. It's a very small channel. We're growing. I mean, it's very steady. But we're dealing with, you know, four, five, six new subscribers a day. But it's steady. And this weekend, something was going on, and it, it was, you know, 10 an hour, 20. I mean, I was gaining, there was a lot of subscribers all of a sudden. I'm like, what is going on? I, it's very unusual for a channel of small, as small as mine is to have that many viewers. I think I got like 100 viewers or 100 subscribers in the last two or three days. And I couldn't figure out why. I mean, it's a good thing. I mean, I, I, I thought, well, something must have happened somebody must have said something or i don't know and i still don't know but i think i know 
because I, I I ended up I so I so I googled turfgrass epistemology to see like something somebody talking about it on Facebook. I'm not on Facebook. I don't even really know how to do Facebook. So, but I thought maybe it's on Facebook. Uh, maybe it's on one of these chat forum things that I don't really I don't ever explore. I don't really know even how to do a lot of stuff. But I came across a video, and in the, I was watching the video, and I thought, well, that guy, the guy's kind of. Um, he's kind of discussing a little bit about what I've discussed on my channel. And I thought, okay, well, he's got me interested. And then about halfway through, I realized like, I think this is why so many people have been coming over and subscribing to my channel. So we're going to watch this video, not just because it's very flattering of me, although that's a major reason, major reason, <laughs> but I just wanted to use this as an opportunity to tell this gentleman, I don't know who this is. I can't remember his name. He does look familiar. I think I might've emailed him at some point in the past. I can't remember exactly. Um, but nevertheless, he was very flattering and I would like to show him my gratitude. This video is from a channel called budget lawns and it's called you're doing too much to fertilize your lawn, which immediately got my interest. Cause like, well, you probably, probably true. A case against milorganite and soil tests for grass. Now, if you know me, if you know, if you've listened to this channel, I'm not anti-soil test. I'm just anti-soil test for no good reason, right? I mean, if you have a good reason, then I'm all for it. But to me, a good reason is oftentimes light years away from the reasons people are using soil tests or taking soil tests. And so um, he has a case against milorganite and soil tests. And that's very unusual for most YouTube lawn care people, just the average homeowner, to have a, a video about not soil testing or having a concern about soil testing grass, most of them will say, you got a soil test. You got to take a soil test. You got to buy this $15 soil test and you can, you know, it'll automatically come in the mail and you'll automatically get the fertilizer and the order and all this other stuff. So they're using it as a means for, you know, capitalizing on something, whatever, but you just don't see an average home person, an average lawn care operator have a video saying, yeah, you probably shouldn't soil test as much as you think you should. And so that got my interest, the title. So good job on the title. <laughs> so let's get into it before I get to this. Is, we're going to be here forever if I don't get into this thing. So again, it's by budget lawns. You're doing too much to fertilize your, your lawn. And it's about five minutes. I'll do my best to get through it without with keeping my mouth shut. Okay. I can only think of one good reason to use a fertilizer derived from biosolids. Other than that, they're just not part of my plan anymore. What is a biosolid fertilizer? You might often hear the words organic or natural, but unless the label on the bag says derived from biosolids, I'm not talking about that kind of fertilizer. This description comes from the United States Environmental Protection Agency. Biosolids are a product of the wastewater treatment process. During wastewater treatment, the liquids are separated from the solids. Those solids are then treated physically and chemically to produce a semi-solid, nutrient-rich product known as biosolids. The terms biosolids and sewage sludge are often used interchangeably. When applied to land at the appropriate agronomic rate, biosolids provide a number of benefits including nutrient-rich addition, improved soil structure, and water reuse. So it's not to say that these types of fertilizers don't have their place in lawn care. I just don't find them beneficial for me anymore, and here's why. As I've gained more experience in lawn care, I've become more confident in using products. And the main reason I used to use biosolids was it 
Does it burn your lawn? So if you're a lawn care rookie and just getting started, this is one advantage. You don't have to worry about applying too much and frying your grass. Well, that much is definitely true. You know, there, there's no doubt about that. I mean, you don't even want to know some of the stuff I've done with biosolids in the name of science. I mean, it's... <laughs> I don't want to say it's impossible to burn turf grass with biosolids, but whatever rate it is, it is far greater than you can possibly ever mess up with or imagine. I mean, you would... Pr if it, I've literally put on biosolids on turf grass so thickly. That's a word. So, so dense and so much biosolids that you could barely see the leaf blades being green. In other words, it was all black. And I just left a couple of leaf blades poking up from the, from the top because I thought it would kill it if I just completely buried it. And watered that sucker in. And as soon as those leaves got up through there, it just took right off. There was no, there was no burn. So that much, I can have a great deal of confidence in. You're not going to burn any grass with, with a bile solid. Let me go ahead and play it, and I'll, I'll address some of the comments in the chat. But if that's the only reason I'm going to use it, the number one reason I don't want to use it is it's just way too expensive. I don't have to be a math whiz to know that these biosolid products can be twice as much or even more expensive than just your general all-purpose fertilizer for one pound of nitrogen. For those of people who haven't watched that video, that I did, he's right about that. It can be twice or more. And the work that I've done on it, whether it's a pound, price per pound of N, or um, if you use the turf grass response longevity, it ends up being about four to seven times more expensive, depending on how you quanti quantify the, the cost, the price. Um, but it's, um, it's deceptive because the bag price can be somewhat competitive but the amount of nitrogen in the bag is so low that you're, you'd have to buy many, many more bags in order to equal the amount of nitrogen from another bag, like say a 2100 or something like that. So it, it seems to the average person that it's a good deal because the bag price is so low. But in fact, it's much, much more expensive than another comparable fertilizer on the cost per pound of nitrogen. So he's definitely on target there. For the cost... And the benefit of not burning, <laughs> it's just too expensive for me. The cost isn't the only reason why I've abandoned biosolids as part of my lawn care plan. As the years go by, I've also just lowered my expectations out of what I want from my grass. And I have found that a general all-purpose synthetic quick-release fertilizer does enough for me. This is where I kind of grant, I cringed a little bit. I was like, man, he's on the right track. He's on the right track. And, and, and hold tight. He's, he's, he's still on the right track. He, 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 he's definitely, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not judging him here. But I saw this 10, 10, 10. I'm like, oh, you know, but he uses that as an example. So it's all good. But um, uh, he's saying he, you know, all-purpose synthetic fertilizer is, is what he's been using. And you know, I'll say that you can go back and look in the literature for decades and you're going to be there for a long time before you ever find any literature that, that supports a, a biosolid above a synthetic when it comes to response or cost. You're not going to find it. So these synthetic fertilizers are, for many, many decades, it's been consistent that it is, they are the, the most effective 
financially, uh, pro- financial product, and in terms of turf grass response, they're very, very, very good. It's hard to beat them. So well done, well said, keep going. I don't need to add a biosolid to extend that nitrogen effect. And see, I wonder if he had that opinion before he, uh, he listened to my channel. If he did, then kudos to him. Great. I wish I knew his name. I'd use his name. But great. If he knew that beforehand, then all power to you. But if he didn't know before he listened and watched the channel, and now he knows, I mean, that is impact. That's why I do what I do. If, if he didn't know beforehand. If he knew beforehand, then great. But this makes me so happy to see people start to move more towards management practices that are supported by evidence and it makes it maybe he knew it beforehand but let's continue I'm, i'll be here for eternity because <laughs> i just want to keep talking about it a dark dark green lush lawn just isn't at the top of my priority list anymore i'm more focused on keeping it nice and thick and relatively weed free if i can do those things i'm happy but that's still not the most important reason why i've moved away from biosolids. As the years have gone by and I become more and more educated in lawn care, I start to rethink some of my practices, in particular the use of phosphorus. Getting a soil test done every year to drive my fertilizer decisions has just never been a good enough explanation for me. I've always held true to the eye tests. If your lawn looks like it needs to be fed, then feed it. If it looks full and healthy, then leave it alone. Trust me, I've heard over and over again how irresponsible I'm being with that advice, especially from the staunch soil test believers. But as it turns out, maybe we've all had it wrong in one way or another. New lawn care channels are popping up on YouTube all the time. But it wasn't until I started watching Dr. Travis Shaddix over at Turfgrass Epistemology that this all made more sense to me. He provided real evidence that finally got me rethinking my approach and practices to phosphorus. Now, I'm going to keep my comments on him short so as not to misquote him or put words into his mouth. As well, thank you. <laughs> the last thing anybody wants, including him, including anybody else, is to be taken out of context. But I appreciate his consideration, that's for sure. But I'm nice. I'm friendly. I'm not going to, you know... <laughs> Some, some, I mean, I hope I come across, come across as friendly. I don't have any, any, anything, any interest other than the claims. I'm interested in truth claims and I'll, I'll viciously attack claims, but the people I, I love people. I mean, you know, I, I have no, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm kind, I'm not going to bite, <laughs> but thank you for your consideration. <laughs> He explained things, research indicates that soil test numbers don't always provide a reliable means to dictate the nutrients your grass needs from fertilizer. In other words, those soil test numbers don't mean much. Most of the time, all your turf grass really needs... For those of you who might not have seen some of the channel, some of my channel, and this is the first time you're hearing it, when he's saying soil test channel and soil test values don't mean much, I've mentioned that s- several times, and I just want to make sure that I'm clear is that they they don't really mean that much to me. Um, just looking at a number on a test, unless I'm trying, I'm using that number for some evidence based purpose. In other words, 
if if the turf grass isn't looking acceptable or there's some problem and I'm trying to diagnose the, the, the turf grass issue, then I'll take a soil test to kind of help guide me. Or if there's been a pre-existing condition, I'm trying to keep track of it, then there could be some value there. Um, but but he, I, mean, I just want to make sure we're clear is that when he says that, he, um, I, I don't want to speak for him, but um, there is a lot of value to that approach. And what he's saying is it's not that the, not that the turf, this soil test doesn't mean anything, but I mean, for the general use of soil tests, the general way, generally the way we use soil tests, or the majority of people use soil tests, that's what I'm talking about. I don't, that, that's not really warranted. There's not a lot of evidence to support, oh, my phosphorus is 30 parts per million, so I got to go throw down phosphorus. That, I think that's, I want to make sure we're clear on that, is that I'm not anti-soil test. I'm anti-soil test for no good reason. And just because a soil test says it's low does not mean that it's low unless I have more information about how the soil test was taken and how the correlation was done at that lab, what the extractant was, what the, what the turf grass was, and all, I need more information. Because in the majority of cases, these soil tests, the interpretation of the test, were not done on turf grass plots. They were done on alfalfa or sorghum or something else. And their values, their critical values for corn or whatever they did, are nowhere remotely close to turf grass values. The turf grass values are almost always much lower than the critical level that they have at the lab. So that's the reason. That's one reason I don't have a lot of confidence in whatever number they want to put on a soil test, and then they want to recommend buying their product and putting out potassium or something. There's just not a lot there. Ah, I gotta shut up. I gotta keep going. I'm sorry. I'm gonna be here forever. It is nitrogen, and that's it. Only when you see a problem in your lawn, the key point being C, should you consider other nutrients to fix it. At which point, perhaps there's an issue with your phosphorus and or potassium levels and a soil test might help guide you. After learning all this, now I have no reason to regularly apply fertilizers with high potassium and phosphorus. Yes, yes. That's what I'm going for. He has no good reason to apply high, high levels of phosphorus and potassium. Phosphorus what, levels like... Yeah. That's, this is what I'm talking about. He, I, th I don't know this man. I don't know all the drama behind anything else in other channels and all this other stuff. Who gets along, who doesn't get along. I couldn't care less about that. What I care about is people who, who, are, who have been used to doing things a certain way, which is fine. But question and critically think your way through your program and, and, and ask, reflect on it and ask, you know, why am I, how do I know? This is epistemology. How do I know I need a 10, 10, 10, the 10 phosphorus? How do I know I need a 10 potassium? 13, 13, 13. How, well, there's a pretty good case to be made for the nitrogen, a very strong case to be made for the nitrogen. But how do I know I need to pay for that phosphorus and potassium? That's what I'm trying to get across to people. Ask yourself, how, how do you know? And what's inevitably going to happen if you're intellectually honest with yourself, you're going to realize you don't know. And you're going to start asking questions to specialists like myself or any of the other professors and doctors around the United States or the world. Many, many people who are specialists in this area who can help and can help you and guide you. And they're generally going to get their opinion and their information from the published literature or from their research that they've conducted. And the chances are much greater that if following those recommendations and those best management practices are, you're, you're going to have a greater chance of 
forming a more efficient nutrient management program with your turf grasses. That's what I'm trying to get across. And I, and I'm, I'm so happy, <laughs> so happy. A triple 10 or 13, much less had a biosolid on top of that. So this season I'll be looking into more nitrogen rich fertilizers with the other two numbers sitting at zero. I mean, I, I don't know who this guy is. Someone's got to give me his name or his email or something. I got to call this guy. I mean, he, I, I got to sell. I, I'm telling. I mean, you know what? I'm telling you. Thank you right here on, the, on my channel. Thank you for doing whatever you're doing. I don't care what you did in the past. I couldn't care less who. I mean, whatever. I'm not involved with all the lawn care drama in the background. I'm letting you know that from what I'm inferring from what you've said on your channel here is that you used to do it one way, and based upon the information you gained from the Turfgrass Epistemology channel that you've rethought how you do things and you're making adjustments and, and those adjustments are lowering or eliminating phosphorus or, and lowering or eliminating potassium. And in the great majority of cases, if you do that, you're probably going to result in the same quality lawn, if not better in some cases, particularly if you're applying too much potassium, the potassium is causing some other issues, and you're going to do it for less money. The product you're going to you're going to you're going to result in, i.e., the lawn or your your customer's lawn, is probably going to be as good or better as it, than it was before, and you're going to do it for less money. That that's, you know, that's BMP right there. I mean, that's that's the, those are best management practices. That's what we're here for. Keep going. Even further, I have no reason to ever perform a soil test on my lawn to dictate my fertilizer decisions unless of course i see something wrong so until then i'm going to keep relying on the one method and two things that have never let me down my own eyeballs yeah so that's it and he, he ends it so uh, i'm not going to nitpick it because there's a little bit there at the end you know you know you can your your, your senses can deceive you i'm not going to but i'm not going to go down that road right now um his point is my point and that is Stop looking at numbers on a piece of paper because those numbers are not like uh, medical test numbers. They're not that reliable. We have nowhere near the confidence in soil test numbers as they do in the medical world. You know, even in the medical world, they can be wrong, but at least there's a great deal of work and confidence and research done in that world where the numbers are, you know, in the ballpark. I mean, they, they're going to know what a high cholesterol level is and they're, they're going to know your risk and so forth. And in turf grass, we don't have millions and millions and millions of dollars that we've relied upon to do all this work and we have strong value. We don't have that, okay? <laughs> so stop looking at numbers on a piece of paper unless you actually see something wrong with your turf and you're trying to diagnose a problem or if historically you've been low in sulfate or you've been low in phosphorus and you're trying to do the applications to kind of keep that turf grass you know, supplied with a deficient element. Those are different cases where you're, you're familiar, you're, you know, historically you've been low. So you want to, Keep track of that over time. Those are good reasons. Okay, but, you know, his point is you don't really have to take a soil test unless you have a problem, and that's what I've been saying, you know, and I know there's, I know the argument against it where you say, well, I don't ever want to have a problem. Okay, and I'll go into that when I get into soil testing. If you're going to come and say, well, Travis, I don't ever want my turf grass to be deficient in this nutrient. Okay, if that's your argument, you better think long and hard about that before you come to me with that argument because I'm going to obliterate it. Okay. That's a horrible argument. And I'm going to go into that argument whenever I get to soil testing, whenever that is, 
probably sometime later in this year. I got so many other element, uh, so many other topics lined up. Um, but whatever your name is, budget lawns. I mean, that that's already been shown by not seen by nine thousand people. I don't know if that's why I got so many subscribers all of a sudden pop up. I have no clue. But um, it seemed awful curious. I'm like something's going on, and then I saw this thing popped up like like literally. I think the day of when more and more people started subscribing to my channel. And so I'm, I'm just connecting the two and saying, maybe that's what it was. I don't know. Um, I do, I do see some comments in the chat that I'll, I'll go over just briefly. Um, I don't, again, and then Aldo and gray and those who might know this gentleman, I don't know. Um, you know, Aldo says likely someone shared my channel in a public forum. That's what I thought. I, I, maybe they did that too. I don't know. And I don't know the forums. I want to get, there's a comment in here about forums and I want to, um, I want to mention, or I want to, where, where, where did it go? Oh, thanks Kinetic Cubonican about the kind word there. You had more influence on YouTube than I think. Yeah. And that's, yeah, perhaps. <laughs> and I'm great. You say he didn't know this guy didn't know or care. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know the guy. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not true. I don't know. All I know is now it seems like the information I provided has helped him help convince him that maybe he needs to make an adjustment and the adjustments, as far as I'm concerned that he's mentioned are a okay with me. That's what I've been trying to get across to him. So, or not to him, but to just the general public. Um, so yeah, several. Okay. Hang on. Let me see. There was something else. Oh, oh yeah. It was from Damon. Damon, you mentioned something. I don't, Damon Daniels, have, I'm sorry if we haven't, if we've met, I don't know if that's your handle or if I just forgot something I don't recall, but it sounds like you, you were at the sports field managers association meeting in Daytona and maybe, maybe you heard me give a talk. I, I don't remember. I, I'm sorry if you came and said hello and I've, I've already forgotten. I apologize. But you mentioned something, somebody mentioned something about a lawn, uh, lawn forum or something. Said so maybe it was your reply in a lawn. I don't know lawn forum. Um, I don't know, but I did see something on a lawn forum. Again, I was looking to see what the reason was why so many people started subscribing, and I saw something. I googled turfgrass epistemology, and something popped up. And I think it was this lawn forum thing you just mentioned. I thought it was Damon, but maybe I, maybe I missed it. I don't know. Um, and in that forum, I I I, I don't explore those those forums. And so I didn't really know what I was looking at and I was reading through it and they had a lot of positive things to say about like, Hey, I, I saw this turfgrass epistemology channel and you know, I'm starting to reconsider this and I'm reconsidering that. That's basically what you're expressing verbally is that you're, you're saying, I'm going to reconsider what you're really th saying is I'm critically thinking my way through my program. I'm having some doubt as to whether or not my program is as efficient as it can be. And that is critical to the first, you know, to the infancy, the first steps of moving more towards, you know, best management practices when it comes to nutrients. And so um, I couldn't be more happy with what I read on, I, I think it was, I don't know the name of the forum, Lawn Forum. Is there a forum called Lawn Forum or Lawn Care Forum or whatever it's called? I thought I saw it in chat, but I'm, I'm sorry. I got so many things going on. I can't see it, but, um, but yeah. Anyway, so thank you to this gentleman for that little kind little 
short blurb in your channel. Like I said, you have nine, 10,000 views on this thing, 28,000 subscribers. So maybe that's what, that's gotta be why. I mean, that's, that's huge for, for a small channel like mine to have that. So thank you for this gentleman. Um, Don Kyle, 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 I don't know how you pronounce your, your name, but says, this is all good about MPNK and soil testing. I've been waiting to find out kelp seaweed types of stimulus. Yeah. So kelp and seaweed and all that, um, biostimulant stuff is going to be, um, coming on soon. Well, coming on, I don't know if coming on soon, but it's going to, I'm going to be going over that soon. I'm going to, um, open up the phone line. If you guys want to call great, if you don't want to call then I'm just going to keep going through. I've got literally an hour and a half of stuff to do. So if I'll just go through it until you call. And if you don't want to call, that's a, okay. You know, it's no problem at all. Just hang out and, and, um, and we'll, we'll, uh, you just enjoy the show. If you want to do that, enjoy the show and until someone calls, I'm going to, I'm going to go to the voicemail. This, there's, I'm going to go to the next thing. So the next thing is a couple of people have been using the, this phone number, eight, five, nine, four, 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 two, three, four, um, for asking questions. And I've mentioned on the channel that I prefer that method. And so I'm going to go over the chats and the voicemails first tonight, because I, I prefer that method. And I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, promote those people that have already sent in voicemails and see if I can do that here. Okay. What I'm going to do is I'm going to try this. Actually, you know what? Let me turn that off just for a second, guys, because I don't want to get this interrupted. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do the phone number or not tonight, but we'll see. Let me see if I can. Okay. So I got a voicemail and I'm going to play the voicemail and then we're going to answer the voicemail, answer the question. Okay. If I can get this to work, hopefully this works. Here we go. Hey, hey, Dr. Shaddix. Um, I just wanted to, um, I want to mention something and see if maybe you could weave that into, weave it into a conversation one day on one of your talks. Um, it's regarding nitrogen that's in rainfall. Right, I don't know much about this, but I, I heard about it um, years ago. But anyway, I did a Google search and came across a publication um, from the USGS, um, a study called uh, Nitrogen Concentrations and Deposition in Rainfall at two sites in the Coastal Bend area, South Texas. Um, anyway, if you uh, if you have any 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 comments on this subject, I'd, I'd appreciate hearing about it. Thanks. Have a good day. Bye. Thank you. Yeah, I don't know the gentleman's name. He didn't leave his name, and that's a-okay with me. That's fine. You don't want to leave your name. Um, so the question was about nitrogen deposition in rainfall. And I, and for, I do get that question a fair amount, far more than you think I would. But I do get that question occasionally. And um, so those of you who may not be familiar with it, when in lightning and rainfall, there's a, uh, the process results in some small amount of the nitrogen in the air being deposited when it rains. And so the question is, how do, we, how do you know? How do you know how much is being deposited? And should we count on that and rely on that? And whatever, the, you know, whatever his interests are, the question was, how, you know, you know, how, they heard about it, but is it true? Basically is what I'm hearing him say. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you how to go find that information. And if I can get this, okay. So if you, uh, if you go to, yeah, thanks Damon. He's, he's got to go. Thanks for coming tonight. 
We'll see you next time. Uh, if I can get this without screwing something up, it'll be a miracle. So the United States and Europe, Europe has one as well. If you're in Europe, I don't know the name of their, their system, but they do have a similar system. Has a nationwide network called the National Atmospheric Deposition Program. And what it does is it accumulates data from hundreds of weather stations around the United States. And on their website, you can simply just Google National Atmospheric Deposition Program and you'll come to their website. Now, I'm going to show you the quick and simple way to get some information. But keep in mind, this is sort of just the basic, the, you know, the basic uh, entry-level sort of data set. There's many, many, many more sets of data than, than what I'm going to show you on this thing. But if you wanted to know how much nitrogen is being de deposited, you can go to this website, National Atmospheric Deposition Program, and you're going to click up here where it says Networks. And you're going to go to the very first elevator choice here called National Trends Network. And that's going to bring up two other little options. One's called the NTN gradient map. And the other one's called the NTN inter interactive site map. Okay, I think NTN stands for, I don't remember what it stands for. Something, I don't remember. Nas oh, National Trends Network, so NTN. I'm going to show you the gradient map in a minute. But right for now, I'm going to show you the inter interactive map. So if you're in the United States, this is going to be useful to you. If you're in Europe, just keep in mind there's a similar system over in Europe. So when I click on that map, actually, they have some um, points here in Canada too. You're going to see a whole lot of pins on this map here. Okay, guys and gals. And these pins are the locations of weather stations around the United States. Now, this is only a small portion. I'm not sure why they didn't include them all. Um, all of them, they may all be on a separate system. I don't know. But there's many, many more stations than what you see here. Uh, anyway, so the blue ones are the ones that are still um, operating. The white ones have historic data but are no longer operational. So what you'll do, he was in South Bend, Texas is what he said. So I'm going to go down here to south of San Antonio. The closest station that's on this map is this TX-03 in Beeville, Texas. And I'm going to click on that little blue marker and it's going to bring up a sub sub uh, menu. It's going to have the location. Some in the, now in the old system, you had to use this um, this in this number here, this TX zero three, and you had to know what station you were actually wanting to pull the data from. But on this system now, with this map, you can just simply click on data access. There's a button that says click here, and when I when you click that button, it's going to bring up this uh, page that has a big red box around this thing. It says caution: a build and report feature from individual sites is they're having problems. So and it says build a report and data period. And if you select if you select this window here, you can't see it on the on the um, on the YouTube, but it's going to give you an option of weekly, monthly, seasonal, or annual. Don't do that. <laughs> okay. It's broke. <laughs> I don't know why. That's what this whole caution thing says. It's messed up. It doesn't function right now. I don't know why. But it's even easier than having to select that. We can simply go to this um, little tab here and says trend plots. Okay, and you can when you click on trend plots, you're going to see a number of graphs come, graphs come up. And keep in mind, guys. In fact, I could probably show you a picture of it. I probably have a picture of it on my on my computer somewhere. These are not the weather stations you buy at Walmart. Okay, these are weather stations about the size of a car. They're usually fenced in, 
they're usually solar powered and they do an enormous amount of sampling. Okay. They are pretty accurate and they're not cheap. This I'm assuming I could be wrong, but I'm assuming this is one of the benefits of the, the U S government funding this stuff like this, because, you know, oftentimes we wonder what does our government do? Well, I'm assuming this is what part of what they do. And they've been doing this since the early eighties. And these are, these are highly accurate, very involved weather stations. It's, it's literally like the size of a car. Okay. And has a big antennas on it. And, you know, and there was one at the Fort Lauderdale research station still is one down there at the Fort Lauderdale research station. And, um, and so I know I could go to that station. That's where I pulled all the data for, um, um, for my research and know that that number is accurate. It runs soil, t- soil numbers and soil temperatures and soil, um, values and then water numbers and so forth. Okay. So when we pull up this graph, this says pH. Okay. We can go down here to what to plot concentration. It has sulfate, nitrate, ammonium, calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium, and chlorine concentrations. Then it has an option for equivalence. Okay. Then it says deposition. Okay. In deposition, you have hydrogen and sulfate and all these various things. And then on the, at the very end, you have total nitrogen deposition. And when we click that, the map above changes. Now notice it goes from 1982 all the way over to 2022. And on the y-axis, it has nitrogen in kilograms per hectare as nitrogen. Okay. So this is, again, this is very general data. You, there's, mu- it's, there's much more involved than just this. And there's a whole method behind how they calculated it and all this. There's a lot more to it. But the, if you just want a 10,000 foot view of what's going on in your world, in your area of the United States, you can pull up a, a graph like this. And it says, you know, let's see, two or three years ago, the deposition was 4.5, 4, 4.8. So let's just say five, five kilograms of nitrogen per hectare. So for those of us uh, who, who don't speak metric units or SI units, what is five kilograms of nitrogen per hectare? So this is per year. This is the annual deposition. Okay. Annual criteria five. Let's just say five. 49 kilograms per hectare is one pound of N per thousand. So if we just say five kilograms per hectare and let's just say 50 kilograms is one pound of N per per thousand, then you're getting roughly about a tenth of a pound of N per thousand in rainfall annually over the entire year in South Bend, in the South Bend area of Texas. So that's how you'd go find that information. You can snoop around here and look around and there's, there's reports and you can pull Excel files and there's all sorts of stuff. You can get, you can get much more detailed than this, but this, this is, that's what this is saying. As long as you know that 49 kilograms per hectare is one pound per thousand, then you can make sense of these numbers. Okay. Now what I'd like to do is go backwards just a little bit here and show you what the gradient map looks like. So that was the interactive sitemap. Remember, you go to networks, national trends network, and then interactive sitemap. That's how you get to where I was. If you want just a really broad view of the entire United States, you can go to NTN gradient maps, and it'll give you various options for years to select from. So over here, you'll see all the years all the way down to 1985. 
and we're going to click on 2021 or two, whatever. And you'll see all the various elements and depositions. You have concentrations and you have depositions. And if we click on the nitrogen PDF, nitrogen deposition PDF, you'll see a map come up. And I oh, don't know if I can make that any bigger on here or not. I'll do my best here. But you'll see down here, that, that point down here, I guess this is the average. Well, or no, that was for 2022. It says 3.7. Uh, maybe I was looking at a year or two prior when I was at five, but it says 3.7 down here, that same uh, same experiment state or the same collection station. But look, well, look, you can see the rest of the United States. If I can get this to work here, you can see the rest of the United States and get a general idea where the depositions exist, going ranging all the way up to about eight kilograms of nitrogen per hectare, all the way down to zero. So the majority of nitrogen dep depositions occurs in the Midwest around the, the Great Lakes and you know Detroit and Chicago and all the way down to where I'm at in, in Lexington, this whole area here, the Corn Belt Range, basically. Okay, all this area here. Okay? So that's what, you, that's what you'd see if you wanted to see the map of, the general map of the United States. Now, as you've heard me mention many times that, uh, or, you know, sometimes, that the the um, probability of seeing a turf grass response to sulfur today is much, much greater. We're seeing it happen more and more frequently today than we ever did in the past. And I've mentioned to you many times that that is very likely a result of our removal of sulfate, sulfur in our rain uh, from the cleaning of emissions through the industrial process. We've cleaned up our emissions into the atmosphere. The acid rain that we experienced in the 80s and 90s has been drastically reduced. And as a result, we don't have near as much sulfur deposition compared to when we did in the 80s. I've mentioned that to you. But how do I know, right? Well, the reason I'm convinced is because when you look at these data, when you look at maps like this, and you see this is sulfate depositions in the United States in 2021. You'll see it ranges up here in the, you know, in the Chicago area, about five kilograms per hectare down. So that'd be a tenth of a pound per thousand down to Louisiana area around 13 kilograms per hectare, which would be, you know, you know, two tenths of a pound per thousand, something like that, or three, you know, a quarter of a quarter of a pound per thousand. Okay, have sulfate sulfur. So, but you see the green, you see the greens on this map, right? A lot of green on this map. Most of the United States is well below five, six parts per million or six uh, kilograms per hectare. Now, let's go back and look at, at a later date. That was 2021. Let's go back and look at 1985 and look at the sulfate depositions in 1985. And look how red this map is in 1985, well in excess of 25 kilograms per hectare, which is a half a pound per thousand square feet. Okay. And the majority of Eastern, well, even West of the Mississippi river, but majority of the United States East of the Mississippi river is saturated with sulfate sulfur in the, in the, in the rain. Okay. It's the depositing sulfate in the rain in 1985 at a, at a tremendously high rate. Okay. Now for turf grass, it was actually benefit, beneficial. <laughs> you 
because now we've cleaned it up and you didn't see this. And then the numbers were five and six. And then here there were, you know, what would it be? Five times that, six, seven times that. I mean, very, very high. It's not even, this scale is not even the scale. This, this top of the scale is only 24. And this red is way, way deeper red than this scale is. So who knows? I mean, I guess I can go look at the actual value. I wonder what 1985 would show up as on sulfate deposition. Let me look at the actual interactive site map if I can get to 19. I don't. Oh, I can't. I'm not going to be able to do 1985 on, on this site on this particular location. So I'm not going to be able to do that. But anyway, the point is, is that um, that's how I know. Well, that's why I'm convinced. I shouldn't say I know, but that's that's why I'm convinced that uh, the reason why we're seeing sulfur responses nowadays where we never did in the past is because of that that charts like that where we have data going back 30 years and we had so much sulfur in the rain it was beneficial to crops you know at least the sulfur was i don't know in the long term whether it was beneficial to our ecosystem but to the crops it was able to they were able to use that sulfur and now it's not there and we need to supply that sulfur okay that's how i know so excellent question to whoever left that left that question on the voicemail I'm sorry I didn't know um he, he didn't leave a name and that's that's cool no problem. Let's go to the next the next voicemail if I can get it on here and see what the next voicemail has to say. Hey Dr. Shaddix, my name is uh Tim Lockerby. I own a fertilization company in northern Illinois. I subscribe to your channel and have to say it's uh, the best information I've had ever um on YouTube. My formal turf training uh, was from Purdue University, but it was uh, more like an online course. It's not a four-year degree. I've been doing this for 25 years, and I need your opinion on a product that I've built uh, my program on. It's called Scream and Green uh, by Claris Nutrients or Nutrients Plus. Um, just want your opinion on that. It's a little more spendy than your typical sulfur-coated ureas, but it has urea, sulfur-coated urea, um, poultry manure, and then apparently marine biosolids, oh, and some ammonium sulfate. So it's a lot of organic material, um, which according to Purdue and other research I've read is beneficial, uh, but I would love to get your take on Scream and Green and, and find out if I am wasting money on that and could just be sticking with a sulfur-coated urea with no organic compound to that. Um, again, I really appreciate everything you do out there. It's great to have true knowledge, um, and so keep doing what you're doing. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. I mean, just just the question alone makes me smile because I know, or I should say I'm convinced that he's thinking critically now about his program. Not to say he wasn't in the past. Maybe he was doing it in the past too, you know? But now he's like, well, wait a second. I'm assuming, perhaps incorrectly, but I'm assuming because information he's received from turfgrass epistemology, he's thinking, well, do I really need that? How do I know I need that? How do I know I'm benefiting from paying more for this material? And that, that makes me so happy. You have no idea. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I could, if, if the channel ended tomorrow, I'd, I'd, end a happy, I'd end a happy man, you know? So let's go look at the product he was talking about and see what he has to say. See what the, see what the, uh, the product is. So the product is called Claris Pro Enhanced Efficiency Fertilizer Screaming Green. It's a 16 to 3. I don't know if this is a common product or not. I, I don't know. Maybe everybody is familiar with it. I wasn't familiar with it. I've never used it, but it doesn't mean it doesn't work. So let's take a look at it. He wanted to know specifically 
Not does it work. He wanted to know, am I wasting my money on spending more money on this product than I would just buying sulfur-coated urea or urea or ammonium sulfate? Would it, you know, could I just get the same response that with that for less money? So let's take a look. When I'm looking at these products, well, let me zoom in here, see if I can, for those people watching, uh, you saw the label. Let me see if I can zoom in and show a little bit of the derived from a little clearer here. Might be able to do this if I don't screw it up. Let me see what I got here. Okay. So for those of you who want to know my thoughts on Screaming Green, I guess you're going to see it here. And I don't know if I can, there we, there we go. Okay. We're getting there. I'm very slow about this, guys. I told you to get a kick out of this if you, if you like making fun of me when I don't know how to deal with audio visual stuff. Okay. So this is the guaranteed analysis of Screaming Green. We see the total analysis of the total nitrogen is 16% and it has ammoniacal urea and water and soluble nitrogen. And the water and soluble nitrogen down here says 7.25% solely available nitrogen, solely available urea nitrogen from sulfur coated urea. So right there we know that you know, a little less than half of this 16 is from sulfur coat. Probably about half. It's I mean, it's probably 8%. And then if the manufacturer or the distributor knows what they're doing, they probably knocked it down a little bit so they don't get dinged with fines. So roughly half of this is sulfur-coated urea, okay? And it says 2.4% slowly available water and soluble nitrogen from poultry manure and biosolids. So 2.4% of that 16 is, or 2.4 units of this 16 is from organic nitrogen, basically. And then we have ammoniacal nitrogen coming from ammonium sulfate. So we have basically uh half sulfur coat a little bit of ammonium sulfate maybe I don't know, maybe around a quarter of ammonium sulfate and maybe around a quarter of um of biosolids and natural organic nitrogen some rough numbers here okay guys and then we have some phosphorus which is probably coming from well let's see it is coming from the the biosolids that's the only source poultry manure and biosolids okay and then we have some potash coming from sulfate of potash and some sulfur coming from ammonium sulfate and iron probably coming from the biosolids or the poultry manure. So in other words, they have uh, a normal sort of synthetic fertilizer with ammonium sulfate and sulfur coat, and they've put in a large component of natural organics and biosolids, and they call it Screaming Green and whatever. So the question that Tim, I think his name was Tim, said, am I just wasting my money uh, by doing this, or can I just go with sulfur coat? For those of you who are familiar with the past month or so, I've been going over nitrogen sources and we've gone over the cost and so forth. And we've gone over nitrogen, the turf grass response to nitrogen sources. My take on this is you will probably have perfectly good looking turf grass with a product like this. I mean, there's no, you have 16% nitrogen, you have some soluble in there from ammonium sulfate, you have some slow release from some biosolids and from some sulfur coat and applied at the right rate at the right time, uh, the, there's, I have a great deal of confidence that the turf grass would look, look great. But that wasn't his question. His question was, is he getting any benefit out of that natural organic and the poultry manure in there? Or, you know, is there a benefit to it? And then if so, you know, is it worth the additional cost? I have not gone into a great deal of detail on the natural organics and the poultry manures and the, you know, biosolids and so forth about additional benefits. I will say this, there is some marginal evidence in the literature that the 
application of natural organics over many, many years could potentially increase the bio, the microbial biodiversity in the soil. Could, but hold, hold on. Okay, could. It, it, it would take many years. I know I'm thinking of one particular paper. It was a 15-year study where they're applying these natural organics and they're measuring the microbial activity and nematodes and all these other things. And they're measuring the soluble organic carbon in the organic matter. And they did show in that particular study a little bit of an increase using these natural products in the organic matter. I want to say it was, um, I'm going to get this wrong, but I want to say it was like 4.9% from the natural, that was the total you know, organic matter. And without using the natural organic, it was like 4.6% or something with the synthetic nitrogen sources they used in that study. In other words, it was a, it was statistically an increase but I would argue, you know, the additional cost for that is substantial to get a little bit of a bump in organic material in the soil over 15 years. Okay. Uh, you know, it's, it'd be up to you to determine if you want to spend that much money to get a little bit of a bump in organic matter. Again, we're not getting paid on organic matter. I'm not getting paid to produce organic matter. You're getting paid to produce turf grass and lawns and acceptable turf, you know, soil or uh, acceptable fairways and sport turf and these things. But if you're going to ask me strictly, is there any benefit to applying these natural organics in these poultry manure products? I can't say no. There, there, there probably is some small advantage or benefit in terms of microbial activity and populations from long-term applications of these components that have a lot of carbon in them. So I will say that, but it's not very strong evidence, I'll say that, and it's extremely expensive to do it that way. Okay. His next, so the answer is technically you could see a benefit from using a poultry manure and biosolid in long term. You could. It'd, it'd have to be a long term application and all these things. You're going to obviously run into major problems if you don't have a phosphorus deficiency and you're applying phosphorus from these products. But I'm I'm step putting that aside for now. You could see a benefit. Potentially. But his next question was, am I wasting my money or could I just get the same from a sulfur coat, ammonium sulfate? And I, that's the paper that I showed a couple weeks ago is that clearly there is very strong evidence to indicate that you can produce equal or greater turf quality and performance from using a sulfur coat or using ammonium sulfate or using urea rather than using uh, these poultry manures and these biosolids. And you can do it for much less money. My recollection, if, if someone can go back and look at that episode, my recollection was that the cost of these biosolids was per pound of N and per pound or per day of response was roughly around five or six times more expensive than urea to uh, than, than urea. So it's a very very expensive way to do it. If you want to use these natural organics to somehow, you know, produce acceptable turf grass, you will. It just it just seems to me to be a very expensive way to do it, and the, the, any additional benefit would probably be negligible. It would probably take a very long time to see that, and it would be very expensive to do it. So that's my take on that. Good question. So, I um, 
I knew this would happen. I have a whole slew of stuff lined up and I'm an hour in. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to jump right into some comments and I'm not going to get through them. There's no way. I'm going to do my best to get through as many as I can, but I, I, there's, 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 no, there's just no way. There's so many comments I was going to get to and, or I wanted to get to, and I even wanted to open up the, the voice. If you want to, if you want to call, let me know in the chat and I'll open up the voice and maybe I'll just have a chat, but there's just so much to get to. I, I wanted to get to at least a couple, a couple of questions that are from the comments of the videos. Can't do that one right now. It's too, it's too complicated. So let me try to get to something a little bit more simple here. I don't want to be here till midnight. I love you guys, but <laughs> it's already 10 p.m. My, my bedtime's 10 p.m. All right, let's go to the first question and see see how many we can get through. Let's see, let's let's say I'll go to 10:20. However far I get to 10:20 Eastern Standard Time, and then I'll then I'll shut it down unless you guys want to have a have a more of a conversation with me. First question or comment in one of the one of the no, this was a question that I got on the I'm 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 answering the questions that were sent directly to the phone number first to my to my voicemail first. It says Dr. Shaddix. I recently delved into your video content last week, and I wished to express my profound gratitude for your contributions. Your commitment to delving and to delivering an authentic perspective on the realm of turfgrass is truly invigorating. In an era where misinformation proliferates on platforms like social media and YouTube, your dedication to dissemination, to disseminating accurate insights grounded in genuine research stands as a commendable public service, stirring individuals away from unsubstantiated claims and opinions. Thanks again, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it. I'll take all the compliments I can take. <laughs> okay, let's go to the next one. The next one is from King Khan, I guess. 164, I don't know how to say that. This was in reference to the 2006 Tucker Hort Science paper that I went over. Uh, when increasing mowing height resulted in increasing root length density. There's a paper that you can go back and look at the playlist. And at 38, 33 seconds, he asks... Would you agree by letting, so you would agree by letting your turf grow tall before dormancy would help, would help it through the winter? And I forget what I replied back to him, but he's asking, you know, basically the, the paper, the, the Tucker Hort science paper showed that increasing the height of cut also increased root length density and reducing the height of cut reduced root length density and so forth. And that's pretty established in the literature that the, the higher you cut the turf grass, Generally, the deeper the roots can go. And in general, what I would say to this comment is that whatever height of cut that you can cut it at the highest, that will result in whatever lawn is acceptable to you for that turf grass is where I would cut it. So if you're cutting tall fescue at, say, three inches, and that's acceptable to you, then leave it alone. If it's not acceptable to you and you want to cut it lower, well, cut it lower if that's what you want to do. Just understand as you do that, you're increasingly, you're adding more and more stress to the plant because you're removing more and more leaf tissue, the, the tissue that it needs to photosynthesize and create photosynthates. So the lower and lower you cut it, think of it like this, the lower you cut the turf grass, the more and more stress you're going to impart upon that turf grass. And the higher you cut your turf grass, it's the less stress, but at some point you're going to reach a point where it's no longer going to be aesthetically acceptable to you. You know, you can't, if you had tall fescue at eight inches, which is what horse tracks will cut their grass at six to eight inches for a home lawn, it's going to be unacceptable. 
But for a horse track, they can't keep it at two or three inches because it'll just get ripped. It'll get, it'll get, it gets ripped now. But they need those roots and they need that turf grown as healthy as they can. So they'll cut it as high as possible uh, to maintain as much health as possible and growth as possible at that higher height of cut. So the same thing goes with this. So yes, I would agree that if you're going into dormancy and you want to in, reduce the chances or reduce the probability of having problems throughout the winter, um, you know, you may choose September, October to leave it at that higher height of cut. Don't cut it down lower. Okay. You don't want to lower the height of cut and impart more stress on the plant when you don't have to. But that goes for any time of the year, not just winter time or whatever. Just keep it at the highest height of cut that results in your acceptable standard, whatever that is. Okay. That would be my take on that. Now let's go to the next one. This was in reference to the Spangleberg 1986 paper where liquid urea did not result in equivalent quality as granular urea. Okay. And Chuck Benzing 134 asks or says, hi, Dr. Shaddix. I'm a bit confused still after watching twice in table two when comparing liquid versus granular applied urea, judging the color rating difference, you point to cost as a motivating factor for a decision criteria between the two. However, in the materials and methods, the same 4600 was applied as either a granular or as a spray. Table one shows this as well. However, table two shows the granular applied urea always had a greater or equal color rating. Since the same amounts were applied at the same times, the same pounds in the ground, for the life, I for the life of me cannot understand why there was be such a huge difference in the color rating. Can you speculate why this would be? Thank you for what you're doing here by bringing these studies to the community. P.S. Thanks for bringing them back the music outro. Oh, that's the reason I said put this in there. Thanks for bringing back the outro music. Yeah, I took the outro music outro music out for a little while because it just got busy, but I'll try to put it back in. So basically, what Chuck is asking is. I don't understand why there's such a huge difference between applying it as a liquid and applying it as a granular. Can you help help explain this? Um, I'll try. Okay, that's all I'll say is I'll try. I don't know the answer to that. The authors in that paper just just explained the they just stated the results. They did not discuss that specific result, so they didn't speculate or try to you know postulate as to why that occurred. I don't know. First of all, I don't know why that happened. I'm sure you can look in the literature and find up the opposite information. You can find where foliar might have resulted in a greater response than granular in some cases. But what I will say is that just reading this comment and not knowing anything else about it, I'm, and I'm not a plant person, I'm a soil person at, at, at my core, but if you're applying urea, it's possible that the granular urea was more efficiently taken up into the plant through the roots than the foliar urea was taken in through the leaf tissue. Just thinking about it from a 10,000 foot level, the plant did not evolve to take nutrients in through the leaf, well, nitrogen in through the leaf. It evolved to take nitrogen in through the roots. That's how it evolved. And so it's possible, I don't know, that the, the efficient uptake was greater through the roots than through the leaves of urea. There's also possible, although we don't know, that the loss of urea could have been higher from the foliar application. I don't know. I'm just speculating. But if I were to postulate a reason in that paper, I would want to look into literature further to see if there's any evidence to support higher amounts of urea being lost via foliar application than via granular application. And then I'd want to look to see if the uh, uptake of urea through the roots is substantially greater than through the leaf tissue. And perhaps that explains it, but I don't know. Okay. Okay. So. <laughs> 
You guys are really interested in the outro music. I like that. I mean, it's interesting. So Western Mass, Western Mass asks, what outro music we'll be experiencing tonight? Yeah, Symphony of the Night is, is, on, is on the tunes for tonight. So that's, that's what we'll leave with. I didn't have time. I was late getting this thing to get together. I was so busy getting everything prepared. I forgot to actually post the link or post the, the, the window or whatever. And so I was late getting it. I wanted to have some other music on, but I was late getting it on there, so I didn't get it. Okay. Okay, so this is from Adam c1706 it says this was in reference to the feature video i did a video on the product feature that 600 and he has a he had a question about that video if you want to go back and look at that it's a standalone video i've personally been using main event which i think is essentially the same product as feature wondering if i should stop using it this year and see if i get the same results it felt like after i used it between nitrogen apps i was getting a noticeable green up but i guess that could likely just be from the urea Likely, I've been combining lately. I've been combining it with my urea app and also PGR, a plant growth regulator, when needed. The guys over at the lawn forum all swear by main event, it seems, but I wonder if I should just save the money and see what happens. Well, I don't know that product, but I don't remember saying the feature was not, use, was not useful. I don't know if that's what he's implying, but um, I think if I said that your turf grass would probably look perfectly fine with that product, that 600, with it had some iron in there, okay. When you're when you're putting out a liquid product that has iron in, it, and I honestly I can't I wish I, I should have pulled up this other main event product, um, but when you're putting out a liquid product that has nitrogen and iron in it, there's an extremely good chance you're going to see a very good looking turf if applied at the right rate. Okay, it's all the other stuff that's wasteful, the zinc and the boron, and the copper, and all this other stuff in there that they want to put in as a micronutrient package. That is very, very unlikely to ever be beneficial to the turf grass. In many cases, the micronutrients are more harmful than beneficial in some cases. Um, but if this main event has nitrogen in it, if it has a soluble form of iron in it, I, I don't see any problem with it in terms of its, its response probability. It's probably just a very expensive way to do it. That's it. And I don't know the cost on it. So I don't even know if that's true. But that's the way I'd look at that. Um, that'd be my take on that. Okay. All right. Let's go to the next one. Got to move quick. Okay. Next question is from Valerio. This is our Italian friend. And, 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 and Valerio is very kind. He's like, I apologize for my, my English or whatever. Believe me, your English is far better than my Italian. <laughs> so you're doing very well, Valerio. His question was, this uh, it says, I understood that soil analysis doesn't give a dogmatic value. And Eyes are the first evaluation means. In this sense, what's the influence of soil type in soil analysis interpretation? For example, does clay soil have a minimum level of sustainable nutrition different from sandy soil for a nutrient element? And I answered it and I said, okay, now I understand. I said, yes, different soils will likely have different critical nutrient levels. Some soils adsorb K, even absorb clay, or I'm sorry, K, potassium, Whereas others mineralize potassium. Similar dynamics will occur with other elements. The influence of the plant on soil nutrients will also likely differ among soils, which in turn will alter the critical level. In other words, the plant itself, which is, which is almost always disregarded, I don't know why, but it's disregarded when it comes to these soil nutrient things, the soil nutrient uh, pH and stuff. The soil, the soil test extractant does attempt to provide a, an extracted value that is representative of what the plant will be able to take up. But 
the plant itself has a major impact on the availability, or the, I shouldn't say the availability, the uptake of nutrients that it that it can harvest the soil from. I mean, the, the plant plays a major function. And what I say to Valerio here is, is that the influence of the plant on soil nutrients will also likely differ in soils. And it will, which will alter the critical level, which it will. However, in almost every documented case, when critical nutrient levels have been determined for turf grass, the critical levels are almost always less than the critical level that the lab uses. And this is what I mentioned earlier in the show tonight. This is a result of the developing critical levels on a plant other than turf grass, which is what I mentioned earlier tonight. They generally don't develop these soil test values in these labs um, on turf grass. Even if you put St. Augustine grass on the check, or you put Bermuda grass, or you put tall fescue, or you put bent grass on the checklist on the form, that doesn't mean the lab actually performed a correlation and calibration on that specific plant. I can almost guarantee you they haven't. Okay, So the critical level they send back or the, the point at which they say, okay, you need to apply fertilizer, I don't know where they get that value from. I have no clue. But I am not anywhere remotely convinced that they actually did it on turf grass, much less a specific cultivar or a specific species of turf grass. Okay. Okay. Using the, the plant as the nutrient indicator is likely the most effective method of nutrient applications for turf grass researchers currently underway to address that specific hypothesis. So the hypothesis is, should we use the plant as the nutrient um, indicator rather than the test? And we're doing work on that right now. <laughs> it's going to be a while, but we're working on it. But the point is, if you don't have a, you don't, you don't see a nutrient deficiency, wouldn't worry about it a whole lot. Um, and his question was, will the critical levels differ in soils um, based upon the texture or the type of soil? Absolutely, they will. It'll differ probably because the plant. It'll differ on the location of the year. It'll even differ on your expectations. And there's all sorts of things that will affect the critical nutrient level. So having one critical nutrient level is you know, just a pipe dream. I mean, there's, you're not going to have one critical nutrient level for all turf grasses and all soils. That's absurd. Okay. Next question. According to one big fertilizer, this comes from Esteban Campos, and I, I think I know Esteban. I, I've somehow, your name sounds very familiar to me, and I'm sorry if I forget, but somehow I think I've, I've worked with him or done something with him in the past. I can't remember. According to one big fertilizer company, ferrous sulfate, a highly plant-available form of iron that is not impacted by soil pH ranges. What? Ferrous sulfate is a highly plant-available form of iron that is not impacted by soil pH range. I don't know who said it, told him that. They're selling this as a 10% iron for extra green. Let's not mention the price for a 40-pound bag of almost $90. But all, after looking just a few video, a few of your videos, it has been an eye-opener for me and eager to keep looking at all your videos. Thank you. I don't know where they got ferrous sulfate. is not impacted by soil pH ranges. Tell you what, if you ever hear a salesman tell you that, you better run. I mean, that's basic knowledge. I mean, soil pH is going to affect even even iron chelates. So definitely non-chelated iron for sure. All right, go to the next one. Somehow I missed that the first time I read it. Uh, P.S. Beeman. P.S. Beeman says, Turfcrest epistemology, at what levels do you consider K to be deficient? Are MLSN levels good benchmarks? I replied back and said, with turf grass, applied potassium may result in a beneficial or harmful effect depending on many factors. Both low and high soil K levels may result in either beneficial or harmful effects, but this is often turf grass specific. So for example, bent grass may have a, 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 a level that 
you can't exceed before you start to have microdocum patch. Whereas um, poa greens might have an, uh, a level where you're going to have anthracnose, or there may be a low level that if you drop too low, you're going to have a critical risk of winter kill on specific turf grasses. So with potassium, there's this range where you don't want to be too low or don't want to be too high, but it's going to be specific to your turf grass. Okay. I don't think the same low levels of potassium would necessarily result in the same harmful effects as they do, or they have shown in New Jersey on, on POA. So, or I think it was POA. I may be wrong on that. Someone can check it and and, uh, let me know. Uh, And I put, what did I put? Oh, it's therefore no single soil potassium level would suffice for all turf grasses. If your turf grass is acceptable and you do not have any historic potassium related issues, then I would not worry about potassium soil test values. If you have historic potassium issues, then a soil test critical level would depend on what turf grass and issue you are encountering. So for example, if you have microdochium on bent, I wouldn't be going out and throwing out more potassium because it seems to me that the potassium, at least in the literature, the higher potassium levels are increasing the risk of microdochium on bent. But if you had, you know, winter kill on POA and it's already dead, but then the following year, if your potassium levels are 20 or 30 parts per million, three, and you're, and you experienced winter kill the prior year, then you might want to move those potassium levels up. So it's going to be specific to the turf grass. At least it seems to me that's where the li- the, the literature is, is moving us. That's where the evidence is guiding us. You only got about five minutes left, guys. No- noticed Dr. Soldat did early research on effect of soil phosphorus levels on phosphorus runoff concentrations from turf grass. Remembering your look at phosphorus loads in soils after long-term use of melorganite, maybe you might at some point talk about pea runoff, a hot topic in Chesapeake Bay and use of a Morganite. Yeah. UF Gatorag, I will talk about phosphorus. I will talk about it from an environmental perspective for sure. The whole, I'll talk about nitrogen from an environmental perspective, all that stuff, but I just haven't got there quite yet. Money B 22 says, love the graphs. I use Pennington Uflex 32, 25% Uflex. And then he has all the breakdown for $99 for a 50 pound bag and a 22 with 50% Uflex for $72 a bag. What exactly does you, the Uflex mean and which do you see as a better value between those two options? So I, I, I answered this question, but basically Uflex, as you know, for the last week is a product that contains both a urease inhibitor and a nitrification inhibitor. And um, I wouldn't use it, to be frank. There's no, there's no need, especially if you're going to water it in. It's very, very expensive. You can get the same resp- response or better response from just using straight urea. And as long as you water it in, you're fine. Even if you don't water it in, you're probably still fine. But the cost of that Uflex or any nitrogen stabilized product is very, very high compared to straight urea. Next question from Curtis Bolden, 2638 says, would you consider biostimulants as a discussion topic at some point? Yes, I will. Curtis, I will do that. Um, I got a whole list of stuff and I'm trying to get through it one, one topic at a time, but I will eventually get there. Okay. Main J54, not related to nitrogen. Could you give us uh, the science back studies on RGS and as it really and is it really everything it's claimed to, to do? And I re- I put back. I was like, what is RGS? I've never heard of it. I don't even know what this is. I don't. I replied back to. Him, I don't even know what that is. And is and then another guy says, Reed Grieven replied to that. Reed Grieven six nine four eight says that would be a great topic. I assume the RGS being referred to as root growth stimulant from Green County Fertilizer owned by John Perry Longcology or on on YouTube. It's a biostimulant that is at the heart of lawn care nuts, Alan Haynes plans. The guy that got a lot of us 
DIY homeowners interested in turf care and science. Do biostimulants, seek help work, RGS, how to grow, et cetera, or is it snake oil? So I'll get into that. I haven't got in, obviously I haven't covered that yet. There's, like I said, there's a whole list of topics that I haven't even touched on at all yet. That's not at the top of my list, I'll be frank. Um, but I, I will get into it. I'll say in general, if you look at the hierarchy of risks that I've shown before in a prior video, where we look at water, light, temperature, um, injury, and soils, these products will, will, will fit in the top category. Keep in mind, the most important is water, light, temperature, damage, you know, insect damage, nematode damage, weed damage, all these things. And then a little bitty slice at the top is soils. And in that little bitty slice, the majority of what we're going to be dealing with is nitrogen and a little bit of phosphorus occasionally, a little bit of potassium occasionally. And in, it's a very, very small fraction of that would, would, where biostimulants have any sort of potential benefit. My point is, I would not even spend a second thinking about those products before I have all the other categories on the on the risk risk pyramid addressed first before i ever even thought about doing anything with these biostimulants which by the way i've never bought or applied on my home lawn ever um but i will go into that okay but don't don't i wouldn't be doing that if you haven't got your water figured out if you haven't got the lawnmower blade sharpened if you haven't got you know all these things figured out first i wouldn't even be going down those roads the next question from Valerio again, in response to Dr. Carroll's 1997 study on slow-release nitrogen. The soil of the study was a sandy loam. For this reason, maybe nitrogen in ammonium form was taken by clay particles. I don't know what the CSC means. After plants could uptake slowly in sand soils, the result could be the same. And sand, so and sand soil can coated urea really make the difference with urea. Thank you for a very interesting video. Sorry for my bad English. You don't have to apologize, Valerio. Believe me, I don't speak any Italian. My wife speaks Italian. She, they're, my wife and my children are both Italian citizens, but I speak nothing. Um, I'll say this. What he's basically asking is, is that the ammonium can be fixed in certain clays, in between the lattices of clays. And what he's saying is it's possible for that, that, that ammonium to be released over time. And I would say I wouldn't bank on that. I mean, it's definitely going to happen, but I wouldn't bank on that being some sort of uh, retention of ammonium that can then be pre um, predicted to be used later on by the plant. So I'd be careful on that. And the next question is, in sandy soils, can coated urea really make a difference? Well, remember the the, the uh, nitrogen source papers that, uh, that I went over were the cost. We looked at the longevity. We looked at the magnitude. That was done on basically beach sand in Fort Lauderdale in South Florida. So you're not going to get really much more sandy soil than that. And in those cases, the coated ureas did not compete well with straight urea. Back to the next question. So if soil testing is not helpful unless diagnosing an issue, would you recommend testing turfgrass tissue or, or is that a waste of money also? That's from good BAST 06. I replied back to the good BAST and said, turfgrass tissue testing is less reliable than soil testing. Tissue tests can occasionally be used under specific conditions, but in general, I have very little confidence in applying nutrients based upon a tissue test. I will eventually get to the subject, but it is many, many months away. The tissue testing is many months away. I've done thousands and thousands of tissue tests. And I will say that uh, there is value in tissue testing, but it's not the way we use it today. I'll tell you that much. The variation is dramatic. It's, it's seasonal. It's, um, it, it varies a lot. So for us to know what the normal range is on a tissue test is nowhere near in our, in our world of knowledge at this point. What is normal for Bermuda grass in June will, will, and I have a great deal of confidence in this, will be different for the same exact plant in the same exact place in September. 
in December, in March. It will vary on that same spot for over the seasons. So take that to a many, many levels um, separated when you go to a different species into a different location. So if you say the tissue test should say potassium should be 1.5%, well, for what plant? What time of year? You know, those sorts of questions have to be asked and we have nowhere near the confidence. Now I will say this, there is enough information in the literature to have some confidence on tissue testing when you're diagnosing or you want confirmation of some other issue. Again, sort of similar to soil testing, but much less confidence in it. We kind of have a general ballpark idea of what potassium should be for certain species, what nitrogen probably is for certain species. And if I was to, if I was trying to diagnose a problem and I really couldn't figure out at all what it was, and I've done my soil test, I've done my due diligence, I just can't figure it out, then a tissue test may be helpful in some situations such as that. Okay. Next question. From Manju, I can't read that. I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry, I can't even read this this name. I apologize for the person's handle, but I want to say Manjurika Pashi nine one nine five. What do you think about John and Bob products? As I am an, into organic lawn care, your opinion would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. I have no idea what John and Bob products are. Never seen them. Never bought them. Never applied them. I have no idea what they are. If they're organic lawn care, they're very and they have nitrogen in them. There's a very good chance that applying them at the right rate is going to result in acceptable turf grass. There's also a very good chance that it's going to be a very expensive way to do that. But I don't know John and Bob, and I don't know their products, but that'd be my take on any organic product that contains nitrogen. It's probably going to result in acceptable turf grass, and it's probably going to be very expensive to do it. Jackson Bud 6257 says, any plans to do an in-depth video on the behind, oh, any on the idea behind base saturation? <laughs> yeah, I'll do that. I'll definitely do that. So base saturation, for those you don't know, is a is a, a complete farce of a way to in, interpret soil tests. There's no evidence to support it, regardless of what these these people say. And they say you need to you need to have your balanced potassium and balanced calcium and all these things. Um, there's extremely strong evidence to refute it, and I will go into great depth on base saturation when we get to soil testing. Thank you for the question, Jackson. Next question from Chatterstar6880. This was in regards to the article about fertilizers killing earthworms. I use synthetic ferts and the birds have no problem finding tons of worms in my yard. Maybe this person should write an article about birds, the real killers of earthworms. <laughs> I just laughed at that one, so I had to include it. What he's saying is there's a guy saying you shouldn't use fertilizer because it's killing earthworms. Meanwhile, we use these and the birds come by and eat all the earthworms. Maybe we should kill the birds or something. <laughs> That's ridiculous. That's funny. Next quote, next comment, Chatterstar6880. I'm going through a lot of your videos and I'm learning a lot, almost too much, mostly what not to do. Is there any possibility that you have or would consider producing a guide of evidence-based best practices for the average homeowner, even if it were in video form, would be very helpful? Um, I would do that. What I would say is I'd probably first go to your university extension office or go to the faculty at your university. They probably have a best management practice. In fact, I have one right here. One second. This isn't produced anymore. They have a different format, but stuff. Oh, oh, am I on? Yeah, I'm on. Okay. They have something like this. This is from an old colleague of mine, Dr. Monica Elliott, who was totally awesome. She retired, but they have stuff like this called the Florida Lawn Handbook. They have. They may have something like this in your your location. This is a much much older version of it. This is from 30 years ago, um, but they have iterations of that and up updated versions of that. And they may have one in your location. I would check with the university. I would go that route first. And if something, if, if people wanted to have a guide that I produced, I would 
do that probably, but I, I would probably have to charge for that. So I would just go to the university for now. And if there's enough interest, then email me and let me know. And if there's enough energy behind it, then I'll consider it. Next question. From MainJ54. Uh, would DDP iron versus ETI iron be a better choice with a soil pH between six and five or apply back? Either would like, either would likely result in increased extractable iron. I, di- I discussed this in the video. I showed him. I would not use either as a granular, but if you must, I would go with the least expensive option between EDTA and DTPA. At the at the pHs of six to six and a half, either one of those iron chelate sources would work. And then he says, uh, he says, I just watched your link video and it puts into perspective how much disinformation is out there. Thanks for your research and willingness to share. You're very welcome. Next question, Samuel Asamoa, six, a, sorry if I mispronounce, mispronounce your name, but 6906. Dr. Shaddix, what about potassium oxide and phosphorus pentoxide as sources on the bag? Are these available for plant uptake? They, the phosphorus pentoxide and the potassium oxide that are on the label, the P2O5 and the K2O, those are not actually in the bag. It's my understanding from a, a source who's been in the industry for ages and ages and ages, now retired for, for 15 years, he's been retired. It's my understanding that way back in the day, in the 50s and 60s, in order to measure phosphorus and potassium and fertilizer, they had to oxidize it out of the bag and weigh it. I don't know if that's true, but they had to actually oxidize the potassium and they had to oxidize the phosphorus in order to weigh it. Could be true, could not be true, and but that's my understanding of how the potassium oxide and phosphorus pentoxide ended up becoming the actual unit on the bag of fertilizer. But I could be wrong. I, I don't know that for sure, but there is no potassium oxide. Well, you could have potassium oxide in the bag if you actually use it as a source, but the numbers on the bag that say that there's none actually in the bag. Um, Phil, dip, dip two, three, two, eight. I don't know how to say that correctly. Sorry about that. He says, he or she says, while the criticism of lawn care YouTube videos that lack scientific basis is legitimate, it can also be said that the proof is in the pudding. While lawn care YouTube guys might not have a clear idea about the scientific mechanics behind what they're doing, you can logically infer that they are, in fact, doing something right if their lawns are beautiful. This is ultimately all that matters. As you said in this video, even the smartest soil mineralogist you knew was seriously lacking in confidence, which actually makes him or any intellectual who cannot take a firm position much less valuable to the average homeowner than the dude on YouTube with a great lawn who is willing to share his tips on how he got there. What, what an incredibly stupid comment. I don't know who this is, Fidip, Fidip, whatever his name is. That is one of the most idiotic comments I've ever heard. So what you're saying is because the scientist is not as confident as a YouTuber, you, the, the YouTuber is of greater value because he's out there talking about his lawn than the scientist is because he's not as confident. I don't, you, you could not be more backwards. I don't think you could actually get more backwards than that comment. And I clearly have failed this, this particular person. This, this is, he's describing here the Dunning-Kruger effect. In fact, let me see if I can pull it up. I should have had this ready. I wasn't going to go into this. I forgot. Let me see if I can find it. Yeah, this should work. 
see if I can pull this up somewhere. Okay, let me see if I can get this on the screen here. So this is the Dunning-Kruger, uh, the famous Dunning-Kruger um, graph. And what this shows is, for pretty much any topic you can think of, it shows the progression as one gains knowledge and their, their corresponding change in confidence. So this knowledge down here on the, on the x-axis is sometimes says competency. And on the y-axis is confidence. And as anybody gains knowledge on any topic, unfortunately, we're all on the scale somewhere on every topic. We can't avoid it. You're going to gain a tremendous amount of confidence when you learn a little bit about something. And the more and more you learn, the less and less confidence you gain in, after, that, after this peak of Mount Stupid. And what he's saying is you should have the, the people at the peak of Mount Stupid are of greater value to, lawn, to, to homeowners and lawn care operators than the people who have less confidence, which is the scientists. The scientists have less confidence. What's the Bertram Russell's um, quote? The problem is, is that the, 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 the people who know aren't confident and the people who are really confident don't know, basically is what he's saying. And that's, he was describing in the 1920s, the Dunning-Kruger effect. So a lot of scientists are not that confident. And you'll notice the experts down here at the far, oh, you can't see my screen on the far, on the, you can't see my arrow. On the far right-hand side of this is the, the greatest knowledge and competency you gain is where you're an expert and your confidence isn't as high as the people on top of Mount Stupid. The people on top of Mount Stupid, their confidence is higher. It's, it's as high as it's ever going to get. And it's only after you gain a lot of knowledge and competency on a topic that you begin to lower that confidence down. And just because you're on YouTube talking about this or that and all this other stuff about you should be, you know, buying this product and you should be buying worm juice and kelp and seaweed and you should be applying you know natural organics all the time just because you you have the nerve and you have the confidence to get on youtube and talk about it does not mean you're a value greater than someone who doesn't do that the dumbest thing i've ever heard in my life the people who are not that con in fact the, the earlier today i had dr christians on and he, he has he's been in the business for he's been in science for 40 something years you didn't see him talking that confident about stuff. He's like, well, you know, I, you know, I, I, I don't know that much, you know, in the literature about that, or I, I know there's a little bit of data on this. And, and what do you think, Travis? I mean, he, he's not out there saying you should do this. And, you should, and he, the man's forgotten more about turf grass science than I'll ever know. And he's not that confident on this stuff. But that doesn't mean he's not as valuable. Now, if you want to say the YouTubers are more influential, more impactful, then you have an argument. But that's, that's the problem, is that there's a lot of people on YouTube and a lot of people get their information from YouTube and from social media. And that's one of the very first, the very first guests I ever had on here was my wife. And we went over the hierarchy of evidence. And at the bottom of that pyramid is all the noise and the ether. And it's all the opinions, all the information. How do you prioritize information? It's a very, go back and look at the very first guest I ever had on. How do you prioritize the information that you, that you receive? And you're flooded with all the information at the bottom of that pyramid. The majority of information you get is complete noise. 
how do you separate that out? How do you prioritize that out? Okay, that's what we went over in that episode. This bottom of the pyramid is where most of YouTube people on, on uh, sending information out, that's where all, all their information is at the bottom of the pyramid. It's just opinions. You shouldn't have near as high confidence in that as you should, as, as you should when you move up the pyramid into the level of expertise and into the level of published evidence and so forth and you know, peer-reviewed journals and so forth. But for this guy to say, you know, any intellectual who cannot take a firm position is less valuable to a homeowner. Less influential, maybe. Less impactful, perhaps. But less valuable, the scientists who don't have a firm position, who are a little bit skeptical, who aren't as confident, that's the people you want to sit down next to at meetings and ask them questions. Because the chances of them giving you some BS line is pretty low. Okay? Pretty low. I'm sorry, I didn't, I forgot about that comment. <laughs> let's, see if, let's see what else is left here. Okay, Striferman says, another great video. When I worked as a tech for a lawn care company, we always pushed Lime apps in the spring. The reason for this was we had a whole crew here who have been inside since the end of November and we had to start to generate income. In March, we would apply Lime to all our customer lawns as a regular app because we could not apply nitrogen until uh, April 1 here on Long Island. It was very cheap and we could tell our customers that the acid rain and the snow would lower the pH so this would help bring the levels up to an acceptable level. First off, it takes a long time for levels of change and second, we did not do soil testing. So this was just another ploy to make money. So glad I'm out of that field. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, unfortunately there's some companies that take advantage of people's ignorance and it just, unfortunately it's, it is what it is, but thanks for the comment start, man. Gardener earth guy. Wait for my videos where I throw old car axles made of iron and water that in <laughs> that and, and water that in for a deep green line. I messed that up. Sorry. Wait for my video where I throw old car axles made of iron and water that in for a deep green lawn. Yeah, I must have been talking about iron oxide. That's what iron oxide is, essentially, is iron, uh, iron rust and car bumpers. <laughs> I once had a guy at a meeting uh, come up to me afterwards. I may have mentioned this before on the channel, I forget, where he said, I know what you're saying, Dr. Shaddix, but, you know, the, I saw on YouTube, you should cut off rebar and stick it in my garden, you know, just poles in my garden, and that should help alleviate the iron deficiency in my roses or whatever. And I was like, okay, whatever. And that's... <laughs> You know, that's the type of information you get on YouTube, but people will believe it. Old old car axles. I wouldn't I wouldn't doubt if someone's actually tried to do something along those lines. P.S. Beeman, in regards to the phosphorus soil testing video that I posted, truth here, tough part as lawn care operator as lawn care applicator is you can't customize fertility on an individual lawn basis. I use tests to get an average to create a program and then adjust for just for it there. I can show you terrible soil tests with awesome turf. And perfect tests with terrible turf. Yeah, that's sort of a succinct way of saying it. You can have really great turf with soil test values far lower than what your soil test says you should have. And you can have really bad turf with soil test levels higher than what you say, say you need. So, you know, your point is well made. I mean, you look at the turf. Keep an eye on the turf and that'll be your friend. And that's it. Oh, we got through it. Oh, it's 1037. I went, 30, I went 17 minutes over. Any, any comments in the chat, if you want to post them, let me know now because um, I'm sorry. I try, I try to get a, a, a number. I was going to have a number on here. I'm just going to have to pick a day like every other week and do this so I don't have so many 
comments backed up. So for those people that want to call, if, and if you don't want to call, that's cool. But if you do, let me know and I'll make a point of opening it up and having you all be able to chit chat with me. Uh, let me see if there's anything interesting in the chat. Oh yeah. So no, <laughs> I'll play all the buckethead you want, Chuck, on Chuck Benzing. I'll, I'll play all that you want. If, if, if you have any, uh, if you know who Buckethead is, you know, that's fine if you don't, but the man has put out, I think one year he put out a hundred, I'm going to get it wrong, but I want to say like 130 albums in one year. It's insane. He's backed it off a lot in the last two or three years, but yeah, it's not Buckethead tonight. The Strokes, yeah, I've listened to The Strokes, yeah, yeah. They're uh, I, I don't I don't have their albums or anything, but I have listened to The Strokes, Connecticut Cubonican, yeah. Um, I don't let's see. Oh yeah, Esteban Campos, you haven't heard the phrase "Mount Stupid." <laughs> I'm not referring to the person, but that's what that mountain's com like colloquially referred to as Mount Stupid. Adam C. Now I I need Dr. Shattuck's reaction or to react to how how wait let me I'm screwing this up. I need a Dr. Shattuck's reacts to how to with doc videos. I've heard this before. I think what you're saying is there's a channel called How To With Doc. I think that's what you're saying there. And I've heard somebody, I think somebody else asked me something about that in the past too. Like, have you seen something about Doc something? I don't know. I don't know if he's, I guess he's a doctor. I don't know. I don't, I mean, I'm surprised if I don't know who he is. If he has a PhD or if he's a doctor in turf grass, I, I probably know who he is. Um, but I, ha I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. So you have to help me out there, Adam C. I don't, I don't know. <clears throat> oh, and then John Fetter says the same thing. Well, send me some stuff. I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about when it comes to this how-to with Doc thing at all. I don't know. I, I, I'm unfamiliar with him or her. And Reed Greven. Greven? Sorry if I mispronounce your name, Reed. Dr. S is helping me unlearn so much salesman BS. <laughs> Well, you know, it's unfortunate because the the people who spend a lot of time researching the the topics in turfgrass science don't spend their time knocking on your doors trying to sell you stuff. I mean, they're dealing with students, they're dealing with committees and all sorts of stuff in the academic world where their time is just pulled all over creation. It's just you just I'm sure everybody's busy, but there's nothing on a TMP packet that says how many superintendents, how many sport turf managers did you go talk to today? And how many did you sell them, you know, information that you published? Or how many lawn carpet? We, you know, so because it's not part of the requirement for tenure and promotion, we don't go around and do that. We do it through conferences. We talk to people at meetings and things like that. But salesmen, they're out all the time. They'll see five or 10 customers a day. I'm, as, a, as a former assistant professor, I might see five or 10 customers, well, stakeholders, but maybe a month of that. 
So their impact is much great, much greater because they're always in front of the customers. And because of that, there tends to be a little bit better relationship and that's how all that works. Um, but you end up getting information that is not always evidence-based because the people doing it are, you know, in the field or in the lab doing the work and writing and publishing and working with students. It's a weird sort of dynamic where, you know, I was talking to my wife today. <clears throat> I can... <clears throat> I can make a good case right now that I've had a greater impact in the last six months than I ever did as an assistant professor. And I can show you the metrics, which is what TMP um, committees at universities want to see. They want to know the metrics. How many people have you influenced? The success stories. I can pull up 15 um, com comments right now in voicemails about people saying, Dr. Shaddix, you know, I used to do this. I saw your channel. Now I'm doing this and I'm saving so much money. That's a success story, which is extremely valuable to assistant professors when they're going for TMP. So I can make an argument to the TMP committees at these universities. In fact, I'll make one right now. You really should start considering the manner in which people are receiving information. It's not the way it used to be at, at conferences and at meetings where you you go and you talk to 20 people in a room. It's, that's not the way the majority of people are receiving the information now. People are receiving information similar to what we're doing right now today. You're sitting and we're having a conversation and you're, you're, you're in your living room or you're in your truck or you're working and you're listening to this on a podcast or whatever. This is the way people, people are receiving information. So if you're, on, if you're TMP and you're looking at, is this professor actually having a beneficial impact on his industry, his or her industry? This sort of situation should be reconsidered because I can show you hard numbers of people that have listened to my podcast, success stories of people who have changed their behaviors because of this. And um, I never was able to get hard data, th at least not this substantial when I was in academia. So, um, you know, sorry, we, I'm late to the game, I guess, but at least I'm here now. Gray Fox, thank you. You're you're always so kind. You're always here, Gray, and you're always vocal. You always say something kind, and you always reply to my my uh, videos. And I I will say thank you because oftentimes you say no need to reply, but you take the time to say thank you. And you're you're one of many, but I, I do appreciate you, Gray. Thank you for your comments. I know it. I know it's uh it's easy just to go ah, and go to the next video. It takes a little time to say thank you and good job, and and I appreciate you taking the time to do that. I appreciate everybody that does that. Um, Roberto Gonzalez, snake oil salesman, how to with dog. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, oh, he's sponsored by the Andersons. Well, the Andersons has a usually that's that's a pretty well known company. It's a pretty well respected company. I don't know what they do and don't do with him, but um, you know, send me what you want, you know, to look at. I don't know. Well, you have to understand when I'm on YouTube, I'm doing this or I'm looking at something completely unrelated to turf. <laughs> You don't even want to know what I'm into and it's not even turf related at all. So I don't sit and look, look at turf grass YouTube videos. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm sorry. I'm just not in that loop. Correct. He is the worst YouTube salesman of all time in the lawn care world. Spews nonsense and gets half a million views. Half a million. That, that's what this person gets. This doc person gets half a million. <laughs> so he must be influential. Okay, guys, I'm going to close you off with a little music at the end. I will be back next week. We have another guest next week scheduled, and I think we're going to have one after that scheduled. We'll be more nitrogen next week. 
there'll be at least some liquid nitrogen applications and uptake timings and you know how when she, how long she'd keep it on the surface and all you know all these things and when she'd rewater and how much water should you apply and all all these things um, those are all topics that I'll be going over next week okay and one last question <clears throat> um thank you chuck again thank you for the comment do you in so esteban campos um Esteban, not you don't have to do it now, but maybe maybe on an email or something. For some reason, have we met? I, I think we've met somewhere. For some reason, I may, if you're in Spain, maybe I've worked with. I don't remember, but your name sounds awful familiar to me. Um, you ask, do you in your plans? Do you plan to talk about weird things that a lot of people talk? Kind of MythBuster show, baby shampoo, diesel exhaust, fluid. Oh yeah, you would ask that comment, and I saw that. I didn't put it in here tonight, but you asked it in chat, so I'll, I'll answer that. I don't really know what you mean, Esteban. I, I I I don't know what you mean by baby shampoo and MythBuster stuff. Um, diesel exhaust. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Um, that that's out of my sphere of knowledge. I don't. I, I'm ignorant when it comes to what you're talking about. Are people using baby shampoo in turf grass management? You you tell me. I I haven't heard of that. Diesel exhaust. Really. I mean, I I don't know. I mean, I've never heard of di oh, diesel exhaust fluid. I've never heard of that, so I don't I don't know. I mean, I don't know what that is, so I I don't know how to respond to that to that question. But um, but I'll answer. I'll you know I'll if there's something in there and I can find a video on it or something, or you can send me something, send or shoot me a text to this email or to the to the to the voicemail number eight five nine four 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 two three four, and I'll take a look at it if you want me to. I got to go, guys. It's 1045. I'll be back on Monday. Next week's a normal week, but it looks like next week I'll probably have an additional show. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday morning, Wednesday night next week, and there'll probably be an additional show next week to um, allow a speaker to come on and, and present his paper outside of my normal schedule. So look for that next week, guys. Until then, I really appreciate everybody coming on tonight. I'm sorry I can't get the phone number on. I'll try to do it. Um, let me know if you want to talk, and I'll, I'll make a point of setting aside time for you guys to call in and we can chit chat on the phone until then as always be kind i really appreciate everybody showing up tonight i'll see you monday morning have a great weekend bye